recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up, turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchy and you and Christy. Welcome to episode number 16 already of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your co-host Cam McMurchy alongside you and Christy. Hello, Cameron. Ewan is an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada, and you can find his firm online at duntroonllp.law. I'm a PR guy based in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter, and you can find that at digitalbitspr.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend, and you can follow us on social media as well at LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us there at PR Law Podcast, all one word. And we're also on YouTube. You can, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel and listen that way. We'd also love your support on Patreon. That would mean a lot. You can go to our show website at prlawpodcast.com and click support the show. And we will take your questions at hashtag prlawpod. So if you want to ask Ewan or me a question, uh, phrase that, put it onto social media and tag it prlawpod. And we will set aside some time on a future show to go over those. We have all sorts of stuff to talk about this week, Ewan. And what's happening with you? Well, Cam, you talked about questions. Funny enough, I've been getting a lot of questions, a lot of questions the last few weeks. As you may have seen, some of our uh, our COVID numbers have been starting to spike again up here in Canada. Yeah, what happened? It's been really interesting through the... Yeah, well, you know, we, I mean, we started opening up and obviously if you open up, numbers are going to go up. I, you know, I think there's there's obviously a clear correlation there and that's to be to be expected. Um, but it, you know, it's sort of prompted a lot of a lot of questions, a lot of calls from um, from from clients from the last few weeks in particular. People again, you know, starting to ask me, do I have to go back to work? Right, uh, as as a lot of employers are reopening, they're you know they're they're asking their employees to come back, which hey mm-hmm. is a, is a good thing. This is what we want to happen, right? But you know, a lot of employees are are calling me up and saying, you know, I just don't feel safe. I don't want to get sick. Do I have to go back? Do I have to go back? You know, and, and look, Cam, I mean, this is an issue everywhere where this is happening. Employees that need to return to work and, and might feel unsafe. Um, but generally speaking, you know, the answer is, yeah, you got to go back to work. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. you know, I get a lot of people have taken to, to working from home, uh, myself included. But, you know, un, unless you can sort of demonstrate that, it's dangerous or there's some undue hazard um, in returning. People have to go back to work, you know? This is kind of funny in a way because, yeah, I mean, people are working from home. Obviously, we found out, I think in a lot of industries, it's fine working from home. You can actually get a lot done and it's a lot more convenient. You skip a commute potentially, um, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And plus you work with maybe fewer distractions, although it depends how many people are in the house with you. Um, but yeah, after after getting used to that and getting into that routine, I can see how, especially if there was a long commute or something with it, it's going to be very difficult to go back to that because you think, why? You know, if I could get everything done from home, why do I have to do this big inconvenient thing to get the work done when it appears unnecessary in many cases? Well, yeah. And you know, I, I don't want to jump too far ahead. Well, I mean, later in the show, I want to talk about a fantastic article I read on just this point called the, the Great Reset. 
and how you know we've completely reframed the economic framework and how we work and how we're going to work in the future. So we'll 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 get to that later in the show. But yeah, I mean, you know, again, from this sort of stuff always changes from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. But you know, across Canada, generally speaking. You know, the threshold for whether or not you have to go back is somewhere in the range of, you know, is there undue hazard? Is there danger? You know, it can't be merely the risk of of getting sick. And even if you're comfortable at home, you know, that's not a good enough a good enough excuse. You know, and I was looking into some of the law in in the U.S. around this. And generally speaking, it's you know, it's 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 the same. I mean, states like California and um, and and New York you have a right to refuse unsafe work. But, you know, unless you can demonstrate that, you have to go back. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's, that's just the way, the way that it works. So now again, you know, there, these situations are always examined on a case-by-case basis, like all of these issues, right? So, you know, if you have a particular disability or, or a particular medical illness that precludes you from re- returning to the environment, those are very, very legitimate reasons not to go back. Uh, perhaps, you know, you have childcare issues that you don't have access to, to childcare because, you know, schools and uh, daycares, preschools, what have you, remain closed. Those are reasons upon which you can be accommodated. But, you know, outside of sort of these unique, unique areas, you have to, you have to go back if your employer requests you to go back. And, you know, you could be in some some deep trouble if you don't. I mean, uh, you know, in most provinces in the country, if you refuse to go back when your employer asks you, it could be construed as an abandonment, an abandonment of your position, which effectively is is equivalent to to having been been fired. Um, but abandonment, of course, where it's sort of different, you could forfeit your right to you know unemployment insurance or employment insurance benefits. And really, we don't want to get into those sorts of situations. Yeah, people so, should know, you know if, in, if, if the boss says you're working at nine o'clock Monday morning in the office and you don't go in, there's going to be a problem. I mean, pandemic or not, uh, you know, it's kind of it's kind of what you have to do, especially if the, if the caseloads are getting better and people are going back and it seems to be safer. You're right. I can see how it's difficult to make an argument that it's too, too dangerous. I mean, here it's sort of been the other way. I mean, I mentioned last week in Hong Kong that we, I am working from home again. Um, and it's a new thing because yeah, we've had over a hundred cases for five, six, seven days in a row now. Uh, and each day the case number, the, the, the number of cases is higher and higher, uh, which is a bad sign. And it's interesting because, I actually do prefer working at home. So in one sense, I thought, you know, this is awful for Hong Kong to be going through this now and people are getting getting sick and, and we're seeing more deaths here as well. Um, but I do kind of prefer working from home by the same token. Um, but all I remember was last time I worked from home for several weeks and then went back into the office. I did enjoy going back in because it was a little more social. You know, I could go down and, you know, buy a coffee at Starbucks, walk around, you know, just I felt a little more part of society than I do when I'm at home, because otherwise I could go many hours without stepping outside, uh, you know, just working from home. So uh, it's going to be a transition as people, I mean, this, this whole COVID experiment, there's going to be so many sort of knock on effects as a result of all of it uh, for us to deal with and, and working from home and then going back to work is just one of them. Yeah. You know, and I think we have to, we have to start to think outside the box in this regard. It's not really an either or, scenario, or at least it shouldn't be. 
it shouldn't be either I have to work from home or I have to work from the office. I mean, there's no reason why we can't have some combination of both. And, you know, it, it, I, I know that a lot of my employer clients are looking at moving to sort of rotating office schedules where they're trying to, you know, limit the number of offices they have and just have workers come in a couple days a week and rotate. And I think that that's a really, really smart idea. First of all, it cuts costs for employers. So that's fantastic. You can, you can occupy a smaller, um, a smaller office space. Your rent is lower. Your overhead is lower. Um, perhaps the, you know, the, the number of administrative personnel you require on site or even off site uh, drops. I mean, these are really, really good economic and financial benefits to, to employers who are trying to get lean right now. And I, I mean, I can tell you, uh, you know, I, I feel like I have some sort of symbiotic connection and relationship uh, to, to what's going on in terms of the ebbs and flows uh, of COVID because depending on the week, you know, I'm, I'm getting a lot of calls from, from clients either to start putting together um, termination notices, or I'm getting calls from employees who have been terminated. Uh, and then some employers in some contexts are starting to bring people back, which is great, and are looking to hire people in, in unique sectors. Um, so again, really, there, there has to be some flexibility in terms of these approaches from, from the employer's perspective and the employee's perspective. Um, and we have to start to think outside the box. You know, again, just wanted to quickly go back to sort of my my initial point about the refusals. You know, the next the, the follow up question I always get is, well, OK, I, I have to go back. But, you know, I really don't think that it's safe. I really don't think that my employer is doing everything that they can to to maintain a safe work environment. Well, again, that's fine. I mean, most most provinces and, you know, some, a number of jurisdictions in the states, there is a framework for how to deal with that. Right. You can bring in. Um, uh, you know, a, a, an officer to to investigate the work environment to make sure that it is in fact safe. That your employer is 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 providing access to PPE. That there's social distancing. The, you know, there there is a framework to ensure that your employer is doing their part under the law in this regard. But you know, there has to be some flexibility. We can't just have this rigid approach, regardless of what that approach may be. And these frameworks are not new. I mean, they've been in place for a very long time. Of course always not just because of COVID-19 you have to go to a safe workplace and if you don't feel safe then yeah there's channels to raise that so it's it's been consistent I think um all the way through I want to say on a, on, a, on a related note though I don't know if I've said it on this show but this is something I'm I've repeated over and over and you and when I finally write my manifesto this is going to be a chapter inside that manifesto and it, it does pertain manifesto. to work because I I get so frustrated with the working all the time. Actually, it's not that I'm working all the time that bothers me. I think we may have talked about this before. I mean, we both work in, in jobs where there's a lot of demand and sometimes that demand doesn't fit nicely between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. You know, there's a lot of conference calls on nights and weekends or client meetings in your case, um, which which obviously is a, is a lot of work. You know, we're, we're given areas of responsibility and we have to deliver on those responsibilities, which is fantastic. What I'm seeking, what I think employers should consider and employees and work on this together is sort of what you touched on, which is more of a loose kind of framework of a schedule when you have to be somewhere physically. 
because there are times when, for instance, I'm working on it late on a Friday night. I mean, last night it's, we're recording this Sunday night, Hong Kong time. I had a three and a half hour conference call late on Saturday night that went past midnight um, with my employer, which is fine. I, I actually don't mind doing that. Sometimes we're called upon to do that. But then if we're all in the office on Tuesday and I have a friend in town for one day and I would like to go meet him for a long lunch or to go have a pint in the afternoon because it's not busy at work, I would like the flexibility to do that. And I think a lot of places, especially on this side of the world, I think it's a little more involved on your side of the world, but probably not to this degree. There has to be a better understanding of just you're responsible for delivering A, B and C on time and how you manage your time as a result of that is kind of up to you uh, and then work on the frameworks of, you know, do you need to be physically there for meetings and all of these sorts of things? But I think this sort of give and take is a lot better because at the moment, you know, a lot of staff are required to be in the office for a lot of hours and then work on their own time as well. And I think that's taking a bit too much. Yeah. I mean, look, you're right. You're absolutely right. And I, and, and I certainly deal with this a lot in, in the legal profession, as we've talked about before. Um, our profession historically has been slow to change, slow to progress. It, it, it you know, in many, in many facets of the legal profession, it, it, we continue to sort of subscribe to this very antiquated notion of, of business. And I think, you know, uh, this, the pandemic has been a really, really sort of critical kick in the ass that our, our, our profession is needed for some time because you're, you're right. Um, you know, most businesses nowadays, at least really, really competitive ones. Uh, and, and certainly in the, in the legal profession, the, you know, the notion of a nine to five uh, Monday to Friday, it, it's effectively non-existent, but things that I've noticed that have been really, really good changes in, in doing what I do. Um, and at least in speaking to a number of my, my colleagues and other, other lawyers in the profession is, yeah, some of the flexibility that's, that's, that's all of a sudden built in now. I mean, our courts for the most part still remain closed. So a lot of appearances have been occurring over Zoom. Well, there's fantastic benefits to that. I mean, often, you know, for example, if I have to go to court to try and book a motion date, going to what, what's called civil practice court. I mean, I can sit in civil practice court sometimes for an hour and a half before I have an opportunity to sort of speak to my matter, which ultimately could take five minutes um, you know, doing that over zoom saves so much time. First of all, I'm not, I'm not having to waste time getting to and from court. I'm not having to waste time sitting at court. That means I can do other things. It also means that clients can save the money and, and not having to pay me for that wasted time. Um, these are great, great benefits that can be passed on to the consumer simply by integrating some technology that frankly has existed for some time now, this isn't novel. This isn't, this isn't, you know, we're not turning a page in terms of some new technological revolution, but it's great to see um, the legal profession and some of the other industries starting to find some flexibility in how things are done. Client meetings being virtual. And, you know, let's think about that for a second. I was speaking with um, a good friend of mine who's a psychotherapist. Typically speaking, he meets with all of his clients in an office and that very sort of traditional notion of what meeting with a therapist looks like, right? You're in a, you know, a, a nice, calm, calm, comfortable office in a one-on-one with your therapist talking about whatever it is that you're talking about. Well, as, as he sort of explained to me, 
Um, of course, they're not meeting in the office right now. So all of his sessions have gone virtual. And initially, you know, he said he lost some clients over that because, you know, there were those clients who were insistent upon the more traditional um, patient therapist relationship. But he said that over time, a lot of those clients have come back and he's gained a lot of new ones. And and this makes perfect sense to me, Cam. I mean, imagine if you were meeting with a therapist that you didn't know to talk about some very personal issues. Presumably that's going to cause a certain level of anxiety. Wouldn't it be more comfortable to have that meeting in your own home where you can wear what you're comfortable with, you're in, in, in a comfortable space, um, at least initially? I mean, this 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 sort of seems like no-brainer stuff. And I'm seeing a lot of the same things in doing what I do in my profession, meeting with new clients. Meeting with those new clients over a video call or even just over an audio call puts them at ease because often, you know, the people that I meet with are coming to me in a state of crisis. They've lost their job or they've been discriminated against or harassed. And, you know, it's sort of key to be able to put that individual in a situation where they feel as comfortable as possible. So I'm sure you have a number of sort of anecdotes like this, as do, you know, every employer that I've spoken with in virtually every industry. I mean, they've found some keys, some some benefits to this. And, you know, I think it's just tip of the iceberg stuff going forward. I don't think it's universal. I mean, that's the only thing I'll say there, because I do think there are a lot of people that really do value the face-to-face interaction. And I think going to a digital solution sometimes doesn't feel as intimate. I think over time, people are adjusting and getting used to it. I mean, I'm seeing that to, to, to the point where, yeah, maybe the, the, the benefits outweigh whatever they feel like they're they're losing in that process um but it is still it is still an adjustment and um i think when i do write that manifesto there might be part in there on zoom continue the debate with us on social media join us on linkedin facebook twitter and instagram at pr law podcast all one word p-r-l-a-w podcast send us your questions now by email to ask us at prlawpodcast.com that's all one word ask us at prlawpodcast.com or on social media with the hashtag prlawpod that's hashtag p-r-l-a-w-p-o-d all right, you and I think you were going to talk about some of these issues in your your, your legal section here. Uh, what haven't you touched on yet? <laughs> well, yeah, I think uh, I, you know. I'm sorry, we we it sort of came up and then we just jumped right in, didn't we? You um, a passionate that, man. That was sort once, of once he got going, he just couldn't stop. Of, well, look, you've known me, you've known me a long time. You know what happens if you wind me up and you get me going, then uh, then, then there's no stopping it. Yeah, I mean that was really what I wanted to talk about for for the like for for our legal segment actually was just that that right to refuse work i think we've probably um i think we probably gave a pretty thorough thorough Mm -hmm. breakdown but again you know just just sort of to sum up very very quickly um look if you're if you're unsure if you think that your employer isn't doing their bit to provide a safe work environment then yeah by all means reach out to some legal counsel to get some advice, regardless of what jurisdiction you find yourself in. Um, you know, I understand that that lawyers can be expensive, but an hour of a lawyer's time could potentially be invaluable in terms of giving you some clarity in terms of where you stand vis-a-vis that, that employment relationship and and whether or not it is in fact safe to return and whether or not your employer has been following those guidelines. 
And, you know, and I think there's just a lot of, of, of apprehension and anxiety that builds up for a number of employees around these issues. And again, you know, if, if all of that can be resolved in an hour of time with, with, with good counsel, then frankly, I think that's, you know, that's money well spent. Yeah, there's a couple of things sort of I wanted to, to, to sort of tag on here, which are not directly related, but they're somewhat related. Uh, one is uh, Jane Mayer. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her, Ewan. She's a, a longtime journalist. I think she was at the New York Times for a long time. She's at the New Yorker now. Uh, she wrote a long piece about the uh, regulations that are being gutted in the United States during COVID-19 pertaining to workplace safety. Uh, it's actually a long, well-researched piece, but it focuses on sort of the agriculture industry and um, sort of chicken farming. Um, and just that, you know, while while we've been fighting COVID, that these regulations have been gutted to the degree that there's, you know, COVID is spreading widely through these plants that are mostly, you know, housing or, or, or holding immigrant workers, migrant workers. Not all of them are there legally. People are getting sick. People are dying. And there's almost no, no information being provided by the company that runs these, these factories in many cases. So um, it is interesting because, you know, it is supposed to be that the government or a regulator would step in if there are issues over health and safety. And I think, unfortunately, in some industries in the U.S., um, that's not happening, happening um, at least at the, at the federal level. Um, but then the other thing, I will put a, a link in the show notes to, to that piece. The other thing I just wanted to pop back to you, was you mentioned about the, the online, you know, the Zoom calls. And I, I think if we're going to talk about this, I think we do have to talk about um, data privacy and data security, because I think, you know, we've mentioned on this show before that Zoom is arguably the worst in terms of um, keeping your data secure. I mean, they've been caught repeatedly um, not actually implementing the security policies that they say they do. They're, you know, we're rooting their video calls through servers in China that were being intercepted. I mean, there's all sorts of issues like that around Zoom. But Zoom or not, these are issues. I mean, if you're talking to a therapist in person and you're sharing some very personal things, um, you know, secrets or very, very private information, that, that is a concern because you know that if hackers are out there or people with nefarious objectives are out there, that would be sort of a prime target to try and either sort of step in to, to intercept that, that conversation or to record it or to get a record of it. So, I mean, these are things, too, that are not worked out yet. I mean, we've had video conferencing for a long time. It's like you mentioned, it's not a new technology, but I feel like because of the pandemic, it's really come to the fore in a big, in such a big way where people who had never used it before using it. And, and I do fear when there's new technology like that, that's embraced so widely, there's going to be people who get hurt because they're not thinking security, right? Like it's just not something people think about. And Zoom took off. I mean, people just started installing it without a, without a care in the world. And it wasn't until later that we found out maybe, maybe it's not the greatest app to have on your computer. Yeah. I mean, you make a great, you make a great point, Kim. And, and also when you're sort of pushing this technology, um, people don't take the time to sort of do that background and research. And, and again, in sort of an employment context, if your employer effectively says, Hey, you know, we're going to have a call over zoom. Um, that, that raises a lot of really interesting questions. Could a, you know, could as an, an employee, could you refuse to participate in that context on, on the basis of data privacy concerns? I don't know. That's actually a really, really 
interesting, interesting question. Maybe something we can we can look at in in future episodes. Um, you know, I did want to sort of jump jump back to something else that you said, though, and that's the issue of of migrant workers, because you're you're absolutely right. This has been a huge, huge, huge issue. Uh, it's been a huge issue in in, in Canada here. Um, I mean, we've had more than a thousand migrant farm workers just in Ontario test positive uh, for COVID. Three of them have died. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the federal government, they provided, um, you know, a package, an aid package to migrant workers to try and cover the costs of hotel rooms um, and food during 14 day quarantine periods because the spread among migrant workers has been fast and furious. And it makes perfect sense, right? I mean, you've got a number of people in close quarters um, working and and we've seen spikes and we've seen spikes in the United States in the same sort of contexts. And, you know, the, the other thing that's troubling about that, Cam, is, you know, these are typically individuals who are unfamiliar with the legal system because they're not, I mean, they're, they're not from the country. Um, they don't necessarily know how things work. They don't necessarily know what health and safety entitlements they have, even as migrant workers, or how to engage with the system. You know, who do they call? Um, you know, how do they, you know, they're certainly not in a position to retain legal counsel more often than not. Who do they call? Who do they, you know, who do they ask for, for help? So it's a huge, huge issue. Um, I think it's going to continue to be a huge issue. And, and I hope that at the very least, um, you know, it, it, it sort of sheds some light on what's going on in terms of, of, of migrant workers, you know, across North America. Yeah. We talk about, you know, the, the killing of George Floyd, which is obviously something that's tragic, but we look at the results and the potential for real change as a result of that death. It's not wasting the death if if we can make some changes. And I think COVID-19 is kind of the same way. I, I feel like if if we do take these lessons seriously, whether it's workplace safety, you know, working from home, um, data security, I mean, all of these sorts of things, even just gatherings, you know, I saw some video um, earlier this week of a concert and I, like, and I did think like there's, you know, tens of thousands of people close together. No one's wearing a mask. Like You've got to be thinking like anything could spread through there so quickly, but it feels like such a naive time now. And I hope we get back to that at some point or something close to it. Um, but uh, there may be an opportunity here for some real change in the workplace. Um, and, and that's what I'm sort of hopeful about, especially for migrant workers, because, you know, in the case of the, the Jane Mayer article, it's in the New Yorker. Again, I, I, I will post the, uh, the link to it. You know, a lot of the workers don't speak English, which is obviously a problem. So they can't even read some of the notices that are being that are being posted there. But then the, the irony is that their work, because they're sort of at a, a chicken packing plant, you know, they're declared essential. So, you know, there's some of the lowest paid um, employees in some of the most dangerous environments, um, but they have to be working, you know, while, while a lot of other people are not. And so there's definitely a problem with that. I mean, there's multiple layers of problems in, in that setup. And um, yeah, it's, it's way beyond time before that gets fixed. It needs to be looked at. Ab- absolutely. I mean, this is sort of the p- pinnacle of precarious employment. Um and you're right. I mean, if if this, like a number of other issues we've seen, has the opportunity to get 
you know, some, some print coverage or any coverage. Um, I think that's fantastic because, you know, the reality is a lot of people don't, they, they just have no concept of where, you know, where their fruits and vegetables are coming from, who farmed them. You know, we go to a grocery store, we buy what we need, we go home and we don't really engage in that level of critical thought of what is it that I'm putting in my body? Where did it come from? Who harvested this? Um, you know, we, we really sort of turn a blind eye, um, to, to the labor, the labor perspective of that. So, yeah, you know, I, I hope that, I hope that we shed some, some more light on those issues. Okay. Ewan. So in sum, if people feel unsafe in their workplace, if their boss is saying you've got to go back to work, but the employee feels that it is legitimately unsafe, you recommend them spend the money to talk to a lawyer because it's probably worth it. Otherwise they do have to go back to work, unfortunately. Yeah. And look, and if, and if they take the position that they're, they're not interested in, in seeking out counsel, then, you know, speak with, speak with a health and safety officer, you know, contact your, your ministry of labor or whatever the, the local equivalent is, because again, at least in Canada and the United States, there are health and safety officers virtually in every jurisdiction that you can contact to at least get some clarity, be it on a website or getting somebody on the phone um, in terms of what duties and obligations your employer has and what duties and obligations you have as an employee. So there, you know, there are, there are other avenues. Um, but again, if you're feeling a strong sense of anxiety around these issues, I mean, I mean you know, spend an hour, spend, spend an hour with, with counsel um, and, and get things sorted so you can get back to work or not, as the case may be. Show your support to the PRN Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRNLawPodcast.com. That's PRNLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. There's a couple of things I want to bring up, Ewan, uh, in terms of communications. And I think... um, you know, one of them goes outside communications a little bit more into marketing, but I, I think it's just such a fascinating case study. Uh, but before I get to that, um, I do want to mention uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I think she's probably well known enough that people listening to this podcast should be aware of who she is. Uh, but if not, yes, she, she's uh, sort of a young star in the Democratic Party. She was elected for the first time uh, in 2018. Uh, and she has made quite a name for herself. Um, but this week, um, you know, I, I've seen videos of her, you and I think you have two of some of the speeches that she's given on the Hill. And the, oftentimes they're quite impressive, actually. Um, and, you know, they're worth kind of considering and saving. And I think they're often quite biting. Um, but the thing I want to bring up today really is um, there's another Republican uh, uh, representative Ted Yoho, and he's a Tea Party kind of Republican. Um, and basically, he sort of passed by uh, Ocasio-Cortez on the steps in Washington. And I mean, obviously, they're in different parties, they've got very different worldviews. But he did call her disgusting, and out of your freaking mind uh, to her face. And as he was walking away, uh, a reporter and a few other witnesses around uh, said they heard him call her an effing bitch. Not the word effing, though. And it was loud enough that it was heard by many people. And I think a lot of the witnesses felt that he was trying to make it heard uh, by as many people as possible. Um, obviously, I mean, 
This is unbecoming of an elected representative sort of in Washington, D.C. The following day, uh, he did speak. He didn't apologize, uh, but he made some kind of kind of bizarre comments that I think are still a bit confusing. So this is what a brief part of what he said. No one was accosted, bullied, or attacked. This was a brief policy discussion, plain and simple. And we have our differences. The fact still remains, I am not going to apologize for something I didn't say. And he's referring to the uh, expletive, uh, which he continues to deny that he said. He continued, I cannot apologize for my passion or for loving my God, my family, and my country. The New Yorker mentioned it was unclear who had asked him to apologize for his religious faith, his patriotism, or his love of family. But he was ardent all the same, which I think is a very good point. Ocasio-Cortez did finally uh, speak to this um, later, and um, she gave quite a compelling speech on the Hill. And I think the reason that I want to mention this, and um, because there's there's often speeches, and you say, you know, why are we why are we sharing this one? And I think it was because she was able to give a speech in an era where we are dealing with, you know, for instance, a president um, who excels at name calling and bullying, and that has spread to basically political life in the United States and elsewhere to a very high degree. Uh, but Ocasio Cortez was able to speak without using name calling and without you know using expletives to to make her point and i just want to play a short clip of what she said here because i think it is quite quite well done having a daughter does not make a man decent having a wife does not make a decent man treating people with dignity and respect makes a decent man and when a decent man messes up, as we all are bound to do, he tries his best and does apologize. Not to save face, not to win a vote. He apologizes genuinely to repair and acknowledge the harm done so that we can all move on. So... There's a long history in the United States of wonderful speeches by senators, by congressmen, by presidents uh, that, that do live on. And I think it's fair to say, you know, in past generations, there was there was some very creative use of the language. Um, and it's unfortunately just been dumbed down to such a high degree that this kind of a this kind of a statement is, is quite rare now. Uh, in terms of the effort and the fluidity with which she spoke uh, and the words as well. And I think it was it was quite effective. And I think it would be helpful, especially in such a polarized time, to have language more like this. Um, it wasn't a direct assault on Ted Yoho. What did you think, Ewan? Well, I mean, it, it's it's interesting that of the whole speech, you chose to to play that that one little clip because... Yeah, I, I watched this and that particular part um, was the one that frankly resonated with me personally the most because I, I do have a daughter. Uh, I do have a wife um, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very, very conscious of, uh, of that all the time in terms of all of my actions and how I conduct myself. Um, as a man, be it in a professional context or or in a social context, but you know, really, I think that this is this is sort of the very embodiment of the the ad hominem attack, right? Where you 
attack an individual, not for an argument or a position that they represent on a particular issue, but rather for, for who they are. It's a personal attack. And you're quite right. I think the state of the state of politics in the United States is such that the majority of, of attacks and commentary we see nowadays are in that regard. They're personal attacks and they're not attacks on, on, on issues and policy. And that's where I sort of really, really take issue with, with the comments. I mean, look, you don't, you don't have to agree with each other's political opinions and let's have fierce debate around those issues. But really, I mean, let's, let's sort of keep the personal attacks aside. Now, you know, off air before we got going, Cam, I know we had a conversation about, you know, well, was really this just an opportunity to, to score political points, right? Was, was this just AOC getting up and thinking, well, hey, I've got an opportunity here. Um, let, let, let's use this. I've got a platform. Let's try and, and address this as a larger issue, almost as, you know, as if she was running for election. Um, and, and maybe, maybe that's the case. But frankly, you know, who cares? Who cares if it's an opportunity to sort of address an issue, and in, in this case, systemic and adverse discrimination. I mean, I guess there wasn't anything particularly adverse here. I mean, if 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 the comments are as 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 they were made out to be, um, it's it's pretty straight up um, direct misogyny and discrimination. But this is an issue. It's it is a larger issue at play in in the political sphere and and in other spheres as well. So even if it was an opportunity to sort of platform, you know. Who, who cares? Um, let, let, let's use it. Let's go with it. And let's try and try and make things better. Yeah. And I want to draw um, some attention here because, I, first of all, I do encourage uh, you to listen to the entire thing. By you, I mean listeners of this podcast, because it is quite a, quite a powerful speech. But I, I want to break down just a couple of things um, that she said sort of in the overall speech and in this little segment here and, and why they worked. And I think, number one, her message is extremely clear. Uh, she sets the stage, she builds the context, and she's making a, a very pointed point uh, in a very clear way. And number two, I think that clarity and the topic and the way she delivered the speech, which was very, the cadence was a bit slower uh, and she gave her sentences and her words a little bit of time to breathe. And that added some power to the speech, I think. Um, so there was sort of a powerful side of it. The other one I think that she had in her favor was the righteousness of this. I think it's very difficult to argue that, you know, men should be throwing around expletives at professional women. Um, so, I mean, she's at the very beginning, before she even starts, I mean, she's got the sort of history on her side. She's already got the sort of socially acceptable position to begin with already. And that's a, that's a, that's a big leg up, but it's not, it, it doesn't guarantee that her rebuttal will be effective. It does need these other things, uh, but it is a, it is a good leg up. And then also the language is clean. She didn't need to um, drop in sort of insults or um, sort of lower level language uh, against Ted Yoho. Um, it was it was just a very sort of honorable speech. Um, and she was able to do that sort of very creatively, I think, in the way that that, that she put this together. Um, and you and you mentioned also, like, who cares if this is um, an opportunity for her to score political points? And I think that is such an important part of this, because you said, you know, if if she's doing that, who cares? 
And that's a luxury that people have when they are, when they've got these other factors, you know, if, if they are making, um, um, an important, if they are delivering an important message, if that message is righteous, if it's right, if it's clear, if it's powerful, you're right. Then all of the, the opportunist side, it just fades away. And I think a lot of times, even in companies, you know, there's concern over, you know, will this be taken, um, cynically by the media or will our competitors see this as just an opportunity? And yeah, of course, that that is a risk that companies run when they do speeches like this or communications like this and governments as well. But even so, you can overcome that if your message is powerful, because like you just said, you and people will just accept it because the message is so, so, so important uh, anyway. And so this is why I think she, she really hit on these things. And it's such a good lesson in how to handle a difficult situation, because she looks like such a more honorable person uh, compared to Ted Yoho based on what he said to her in person. And then his sort of his comments, which were a non-apology afterwards. And I think she's done such a good job of just drawing that contrast. Yeah, I, I agree. Look, and and the other thing I, I really appreciated about this is at least as far as I could tell, and you know, um, anybody who listens to the show, if, if they thought otherwise, let it, let us know. Um, she was, I didn't, I didn't see her reading. I didn't, you know, there was no idiot monitors as I like to call them, you know, sort of the tele, the teleprompters. Um, she was, she spoke from, you know, off, off the cuff. Now I, I have no doubt that it was a prepared speech in some regard, but it was a prepared speech that she didn't have to read. And even that is such a novelty nowadays. Mm-hmm. It's it. And it, and it really increases the level of 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 connection that you you can have to a speaker and you know and i and i I was conscious of this um as a lawyer as well you know you you spend enough time in court as as a litigator and you you see you can see the difference of lawyers that come to court that are prepared that you know can can engage and know their argument and know their fact patterns and can communicate and answer questions that are posed to them by the judge without having to flip through notes and papers and and stare at at prepared speeches and you know of course it, it's more compelling it's more compelling it's more compelling as a listener um you feel a sense of connection to the message you feel that there's a sense of conviction and authenticity attached to the message and and, and i thought that you know i i i sort of um i i really appreciated that and sort of your comment of we need to get back to that <laughs> this mm-hmm. this was not the exception but the norm you talked about some of the great historical speeches um, that we've seen in the United States, you know, this, this used to be the norm that, that tradition of great orators. Um, I, I hope we get back to that, but again, you know, I'm sure that there, there are those that will, will listen to this and say, well, you know, you, you know, and you're just clearly a, you know, a liberal progressive hack. So of course you, you, you know, you sort of, um, found the message compelling. This isn't about the political message. It's not about what she said and whether I agree with it or disagree with it. Again, this is about trying to raise the level of discourse in a way that 
is really, really necessary. And this isn't unique to the United States. We suffer from the same problem here in Canada. We suffer from the same problem in a lot of other countries around the world. And that's we have to get away from this notion of I'm going to attack my opponent regardless of what their political views are for who they are. Don't attack them for who they are. That that all that shows is weakness and an inability to understand the issues and engage in critical debate. Debate them on the issues. You know, let's have fierce debate on the issues and and the opinions. That's the only way we get to the truth. That's the only way we we increase the level of critical thought in our countries, regardless of your your views on the political spectrum. Let's get back to that. Yeah, I I um I wanted to unpack something you mentioned in there, which is her speaking off the cuff. Um, and because this is an issue that communications people deal with all the time, if you've got a, a CEO or a politician or you know whomever it might be um, that you're working for, speech writing is obviously a key part. Um, of the job. And I did notice her delivery as well. And I mean, I've seen other speeches of hers. She does refer to notes. I do see her looking down. Um, But she does it, I think, in probably one of the best ways. I mean, it's very difficult for people to memorize a speech. It's something that very few people I think can do well. Um, most people in my experience do write them out uh, and then try and, you know, look up as much as possible while delivering that speech to make it seem a little more personal, a little less read out. Um, but what she does is, is she appears to spend most of her time sort of looking at the audience or the listeners and then glancing down occasionally. Now, I, I don't know what she has written down, uh, but this is, um, for, for, for people who can do this, the best thing to do really is, yeah, you would create a, a framework of the speech. And so you would have a big section saying sort of introduction and then maybe three bullets and they're trigger words. So the bullet, you know, it might say, um, you know, Yoho on the steps, um, you know, something that triggers something in her memory that she can then tell that story. And then if she gets lost, she can look down and see the next bullet, which should trigger something in her brain to then tell that story. So it doesn't need to be written out. Um, but that, but that's one good way of doing doing it if you do have sort of a, a, a good speaker um, who you're writing for. Um, you know, when I worked at the stock exchange, uh, again, the, the chief executive was, was Charles Lee, and he did not use anything. He didn't use any notes. He didn't use a written speech, nothing. He just couldn't do it. And I mean, in a way it was nice because yeah, I didn't have to write, write as many speeches. Um, but, but it also sometimes got him into trouble because, you know, sometimes he would go off script into things that we, you know, really didn't want him to say, or were not ready to be spoken. Um, I think you probably deal with this as a lawyer too, you and when your client sort of starts going down a path, you don't think they should go down. Uh, it's, it's the same for, for communications, but it is a, it is a, a skill to be able to do that, to just go up on stage and talk comfortably. And some people are great. And he was electric when he went on stage, people looked at him, he was funny, he was engaging. Um, and, and I think if you can do that, it's not like it's just one skill that you short, sort of should have in your, in your toolbox. It's key to how you can even do business or be successful as an individual. I mean, it's so important. Um, and it's one of those skills that I think probably isn't taught enough. Uh, you know, the, the ability to speak publicly and, um, you know, deal with complex issues, uh, in front of a crowd, take questions, all of that sort of stuff. It can make such a big difference to your career. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and it's, it's hard to imagine, um, a profession where you wouldn't benefit from, uh, an ability to, 
to communicate well and to speak publicly and engage in 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 those sorts of discussions. In fact, you know, our 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 culture really disproportionately rewards individuals who are able to do this. I mean, there was a great book written a number of years ago um, by Susan Cain um, called Quiet, I believe was, was, was the topic, was the, the title of the book. Um, and she was talking about the power of, of introverts and how introverts are often left behind um, in very, very unfair ways because they don't feel the need to constantly put their own opinions forward. And that that is often interpreted as them being less intelligent or less capable when really all of the evidence strongly suggests the opposite. Um, but for whatever reason, we continue to disproportionately reward those individuals who are capable of getting up and, and speaking publicly. So all the more reason to make sure that you do it well. Um, but, but also Cam, you know, you talked about an ability to sort of speak off the cuff and, you know, we've talked about, um, Trump in this regard and how, yes, it has gotten him into trouble, but also that this is part of what his base loves, right? That he will get up and he will speak his mind and he will speak off the cuff. And that that is, um, that's something that we haven't really seen politicians do here in Canada for the, for those who, who might remember Jean Chrétien, who was, um, you know, a, a prime minister in the in, in the 90s here in, in Canada, he also had an uncanny ability to do this, to get up and speak off the cuff. Um, and it also would occasionally get him into trouble. But I think that that was something that people generally respected um, and appreciated about his style of his style of politics. Um, well, there is an authenticity yeah, to event. it. There is an authenticity yeah. to it when you're speaking that way. And I think, you know, people aren't going to like me saying this, but like a Donald Trump speech is very entertaining. And I mean, I had a, a an American friend here, you and for a long time, you, you knew him, Nathan. I mean, he would he would go home after work and his wife and him would make dinner and leave. This was in 2016 and play a Donald Trump speech from the campaign trail just as for fun, because it was so crazy, the stuff that he was saying and his sort of diatribes. And, um, you know, he went down so many different paths in his speech and like it was genuine entertainment. And I, that helped him so much. I mean, that's probably the number one reason he was able to get elected in fact. And I know people don't like Trump and fair enough. Um, but his ability to sort of manage the media and speak this way, he is extremely skilled in that area. And it's, it happens to be the one area that we, clearly value very highly when we're choosing elected officials. Yeah, well, and I'm, I'm conscious now that we're almost being contradictory or I was being contradictory because sort of earlier talking about, you know, AOCs um, and, and the idea and the idea of sort of raising a level of of discourse. Um, and and now I'm sort of, you know, singing the praises of an ability to sort of speak off the cuff. But I don't necessarily think that they're mutually exclusive. Um, I think you know, the former can complement the latter and, and, and vice versa. Um, but that they're both sort of key points that, um, we, we see in sort of in, in politics today. And I, I'm very, I'm very sort of curious to see where this will go, um, culturally in terms of how we engage with our politicians and what we expect of them going forward, uh, and whether we're going to see, you know, um, a shift in, in some ways, in terms of how discourse is, is sort of, um, 
and speeches are given politically. I, I, I suspect we're probably going to see more of the same for some time. Um, but they are sort of two really interesting examples of, of how you can convey a message. You know, it's interesting. I was putting together just some thoughts because, you know, I've had relatives or friends um, back in Canada say like, you know, if, if they wanted to move to Hong Kong and work somewhere, like what do they need? What kind of background do they need if they want to get a job, this and that? And I realized that I was kind of giving the same advice, no matter what sort of background the person had or what kind of job they wanted to get. And, you know, one of them was being able to write. And it's like, you think, well, okay, if someone wants to be an accountant or something like what, you know, why do they need to be able to write well? But it's such a it, like speaking. In fact, I think it's even more so than speaking. It's it's a core competency that is on display all the time because you have to email people all the time. Your boss, your colleagues, you've got to apply for jobs. You've got to, I mean, so many different things. Um, and and how you are able to compose your thoughts and put them in a way that's persuasive and compelling. If you can, if you can do that that can open all kinds of doors for you. I mean, eventually you're going to have to have the ability to sort of do the work, but if you have this skill, it's going to put you in a position most likely where you will have the chance to prove if you can do the work or not. It, it helps open that first door for you. And yeah, it's something I recommend for, for, for everyone. Yeah. You know, it, it's funny you mentioned that I we see that a lot in, in the legal profession. I think of articling interviews, interviewing, you know, new students coming out of law school that are looking for, for entry level jobs. And, you know, those, those initial interviews can be very deceiving, right? The individual who perhaps is, is incredibly articulate um, and can really engage in, in, in some sort of compelling conversation right out of the gate. Those are not, those are not necessarily easy things to do and they can certainly, um, sway the decision-making process in, in terms of who you're going to hire and who you're not going to hire. But the reality is, is that, you know, that's only one aspect of what lawyers need to do in terms of meeting with a client and, and connecting with that client and being able to listen um, and understand their position. Another aspect of what we do, and you know, as any lawyer will tell you, we're effectively professional readers and professional writers. That's what we do. So you know, your ability to write well, your ability to read and, and identify issues really has absolutely nothing with your ability to engage in conversation or um, be friendly to, to a new client. And often again, I think the latter, those individuals are, are often pushed off to the wayside. Um, and I think that that's a mistake. I think that, you know, those skill sets that you've talked about being a great writer, um, being, being a good reader and being able to identify issues, those skills are just as valuable. And frankly, um, often far more valuable than that, those sort of traditional extroverted, characteristics of being sociable and um, and a good talker we're running up against the clock a little bit here so i want to get to to this you and uh tell me if this this uh, rings any bells release the kraken <laughs> all right <laughs> i think some yes, people i saw this too i saw this as well huh some people may think what on earth is a kraken what is this um this is seattle's new nhl 
ice hockey team, which was announced. The name was announced um, this week. And, and I, I bring it up. I mentioned off the top of the show that I want to talk about something that wasn't directly related to communications, at least not the corporate communications, but more on the marketing side. And I, I mean, I have to say up front, like I, I'm less interested in marketing. It's not something I've ever been particularly good at. Uh, I'm more on the corporate side. But I think this is a really fascinating case study. Um, so, I mean, a bit of background. I mean, obviously the team was 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 awarded, uh, or Seattle was awarded an NHL team a couple, at least a year ago, longer than a year ago, I think. And there's been a long wait to figure out what the, what the name would be. And there's been a lot of um, sort of names thrown out there to consider. And Kraken was one of them. And Kraken's an odd name. Do you know what it is, Ewan? Do I know what a kraken is? Yeah, yeah. I mean, isn't a kraken that you know that massive beast of of the sea? It's <laughs> it's uh, effectively like a giant octopus. Yeah, like a giant squid. <laughs> and, but it's it's it is very uh, sort of Pacific Northwest style, and it's it's unlike a lot of other other team names. So, I mean, it's a big risk um, using this name. Um, but I, I'm interested from the business side because to, to name a professional sports team, something like Kraken, that is a gamble. It's kind of a big gamble actually, because it's so off the board and it's, it's unlike what I normally see. I mean, oftentimes in these situations, especially when you're dealing with something creative, you want to get something that is definitely creative, but not too far out there. Because once you do that, you're running the risk of ridicule or people turning against you. And it can move from sort of like an awkward announcement into a crisis pretty quickly if that happens. So so I sort of admire the, the um, forward thinking, risk taking part of this. And the franchise is actually run by Todd Wiki. Uh, I'm not sure if you remember that name, Ewan, but actually he was part of the team that set up the Toronto Raptors and came up with the Raptors name uh, in the NBA. Um, So I just want to play a a quick clip. This is Tom Manick. He's a sports business um, expert. He's been involved in some of these these incidents uh, or naming uh, teams as well. These are some of his thoughts uh, on the Kraken. They've gone off the grid, no question, with an an unusual name, uh, a name that wouldn't have been handicapped uh, maybe a year, year and a half ago. Uh, But the teasing of, you know, the fact that this name was coming and was it Kraken? Was it Sockeyes? What was it going to be? That led to a lot of retailer interest as well. And I think you're going to see a very strong follow through because in my view, they've hit it out of the park in terms of being original in a time where it's so hard to be original given the fact that so many good names have been taken and you don't necessarily want to borrow from names that are popular in other leagues. Uh, certainly it's a risk like the Toronto Raptors were back in the day, but a lot of the similar principles, including the fact that kids are going to be all over it. Now there's a downside here, Ewan. I think you've probably heard them. I mean, if the team name is called Kraken, what do you call their fans? Crackheads? Do we call do we call their rink crack house? I mean, these are things that that could come up, and there's certainly a risk. And so, I want to again throw to to, to Tom Maynard on exactly this point. You know, I think ultimately the uniqueness will override it, and 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 also Farhan. I mean, it is one of the vulnerabilities of the name, and and they certainly would have studied it 
uh, it's certainly something that, that I considered in terms of uh, my own sort of belief that that was the direction that they were going to go. And I know Todd well enough to know that it would have been all about storytelling. It would have been about how do you come up with a name that has a certain mythology about it? And how do you come up with a name and a look that appeals to kids, but also young people of all ages, if you know what I mean. And I think those principles will overridingly uh, overcome the fact that there will be that that crackhead reference used pejoratively to fans of the Kraken for sure. I think he's right, though. They hit it out of the park on this. I, I watched the Unveil video. Um, they actually released a video a day in advance uh, that w- was quite well put together. And then the announcement and it has shot to stardom already in Seattle. It's already vaulted to the number one uh, um, sports logo in the city. I mean, Seattle's got a lot of sports teams. I mean, they've got the the, the, the Seattle Seahawks. They've got, um, I mean, the Sonics are not there anymore. But but to vault to number one that quickly on announcement is, is, is quite good. And I think, um, I also think it's about time. Something really original, something different, something, you know, it's, it's a myth. It's a mythological character, obviously, but uh, very, very creative. And so I wanted to bring that up as, as, as just sort of a case study on on marketing and taking a bit of risk. And when that risk can pay off, there's great positive energy around it. Hey, I, I thought it was kind of cool, too. I saw the um, the the S logo anyway. I thought it looked fantastic. And, you know, and you can't think about it without not thinking about the geographic location of Seattle. So, I mean, those two things will become somewhat synonymous, which I think is clever. Um, yeah, I, I, I risky. Sure. I, I don't know, but I mean, I'm sure that they will, you know, if they are called crackheads, I'm sure they'll find a way to reclaim it in a, in a, in a positive twist. I mean, never underestimate the uncanny ability of sports fans to sort of create creatively warp these things into something that they can get behind. Well, you know, what's interesting on this point too, in, in marketing, I mean, we say, okay, it might be crackheads, or, or, or if the arena is called the crack house by, you know, in, in a, in a sort of sarcastic way, it is possible that those two terms are used and that they're used so much that they kind of lose their other meaning. I mean, I think a little bit about when, when iPad was introduced, I mean, it was ridiculed that name. People said, how can you call it a pad? Like that's a feminine hygiene product. And, and there was a lot of talk about that at the time, but then it went away and now nobody brings that up. I know that crackhead and crack house is a little different in terms of the, um, you know, the descriptive nature and, and what it, what it means. Um, but, but I do think there's a possibility that it just sort of fades over time, uh, as well. So, um, on that yeah. note, Ewan, I, I will put a, a link in there to the video. I, I know you mentioned you saw the logo, Ewan. Actually, the, the animation of the logo sort of creating is is quite stunning as well. Uh, they really have done a good job. So I will link to all of that stuff. Um, Ewan, we're, 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 we're wrapping up here. What, uh, what would you like to share in terms of some recommended uh, content to dive into this week? Yeah, so this was um, this was an article that a, a former colleague of mine she sent to me, uh, and I'm very thankful that she did. It's a Slate article um, called "The Class of RBG," as in you know Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and it's a this is an amazing amazing article. Um, it tells the story of the nine other women in the Harvard law class of 1959, um, as told by those women, the ones that are, are still alive anyway, their families, um, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself. Uh, and the story sort of opens up with this really, really, um, interesting story about 
the early days of the class and all of the women were gathered at uh, the dean's home for, for a dinner party. And the dean asks each of the women in the class to stand up and explain, you know, who they are um, and why they've taken the spot of a man at Harvard. (laughs) So this is sort of, this is, yeah, this is, this is what the, this is what the Dean says. Um, And, you know, somewhat infamously uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg stands up and she explains that she was at Harvard because she wanted to learn more about her husband's work. (laughs) Um, Obviously, obviously very, very tongue in cheek. Another woman, um, also equally tongue in cheek joked that she was there to meet a husband. Um, but really cam the story of these, these nine women, it's, it's amazing. And the, the article dives really, really deep. It's a long form article examining, um, what these women went through in law school, the struggles that they had to, to sort of secure good employment, um, after the fact, despite being top students at Harvard, all of just the the systemic racism that existed in the legal profession um, against women. It's a really, really amazing, amazing, amazing read. One of the women even talks about she was pregnant at the time and the lecture hall um, where, where, you know, obviously all the students would, would go for class. There wasn't a women's washroom. She had, the women had to leave the building to go to the washroom and she was pregnant at the time. So she came to an arrangement with the men to um, where she would put a sign on the door to let them know that there was a woman in the washroom um, and, and to stay out until she had, had finished. This isn't that long ago, you know? No, no, not, not at all. It it, it really isn't, you know, and to think, you know, I started law school, I, I was in, in 2005 and I believe our, Class breakdown was 51% women and 49% men. So, um, yeah, obviously things have changed a very, very great deal. My contracts class and employment law class were, were taught by women, which, of course, was just unheard of at the time um, back in 59. Anyway, a really, really great, great article. It's also a two-part podcast. I, I um, have gone through the first part and, uh, yeah, highly, highly recommend it. Oh, that reminds me too. Um, I'm absolutely immersed in the podcast Guru, which is done by Wondery. I cannot believe I didn't know about Wondery. Um, I ended up reading about them on um, a website that I write for called 9to5Mac, and they were looking at podcast networks. Wondery does some incredible podcasts. Um, they are sort of uh, true crime, or they are sort of case studies. or I mean, they've got a wide range, um, but the one I'm currently into is, is Guru, and it looks at sort of a self-help guru. Uh, and the extremes to which he put his followers uh, through uh, certain actions and acts that ended up uh, with some big consequences. Uh, it really is kind of a, a riveting, a riveting show. But the main thing I wanted to mention uh, just before we wrap up, um, an article in in Forbes. Um, it's also a, um, a a long form article. It's called "I Scream, You Scream: The Meltdown at the Museum of Ice Cream." I don't know if you've heard about this, Ewan, but um, there was a a museum, and I'm using scare quotes here, um, which was basically sort of an Instagram hall 
Um, <laughs> there were multiple rooms that you would go in and there was, you know, a big um, uh, pool of sprinkles that you could dive into and take a picture. And there's all kinds of sort of stuff like this that you would use for Instagram. So obviously it's a huge hit with the millennial groups and younger also the Gen Z folks. Um, and it was built into this quite successful, uh, um, project, uh, with a, with a, with a, um, with their main store in, in New York city. And it was built by a woman called Mary Ellis Bunn, and she is just 28 years old. Um, and you know, at the height, she, she compared herself to Walt Disney. I mean, she felt that she was at that level, uh, and that what she was creating were these magical experiences where, where young people could go and spend time and just really, really have a lot of fun. Uh, but it broke that she was really not a kind boss and some of the abuse that she put on her, uh, staff until everything unraveled. Um, and I talked earlier just about like looking at good case studies. I think the Seattle Kraken, you know, that's, that's a positive sort of marketing case study just based on the outcome. This is such a good case study to take a look at as something that ends very poorly. And some of the things that business owners might want to think about, uh, when they are growing their business and some paths that they should not go down that could be quite consequential. It's a fascinating, fascinating read. I wasn't familiar with the Museum of Ice Cream. I certainly am now. I'm, I, I see mentions of it here and there, uh, but just a, a really compelling story. Mm, great. I'll have to check that out too. Right. So send me, send me the links, Ewan, the ones that um, you talked about. I'll put those into the show notes and uh, yeah, that'll be all good. Uh, anything else, Ewan? You want to pass along any messages, anything else you want to raise before we wrap it up? No, only that, uh, you know, we don't have time. We, we sort of touched on it earlier. I'll put a, a link in the show notes. Another great article I read in the Globe and Mail called The Great Reset um, and just talking about two major waves of, of layoffs around COVID. So, you know, the first being the direct result of COVID and unique to the pandemic, but the second wave um, dealing with sort of underlying economic drag. Um, and this is where we're going to start to see some real revolutionary change. In fact, you know, it almost is referred to as like a new industrial revolution and just massive reform across industry in terms of how business is conducted um, and the way that uh, employers hire and, and structure their, their businesses going forward. So we'll put a link to that as well. I think we've barely started some of the changes that are going to happen as a result of COVID-19. I think in a lot of parts of the world, including here in Hong Kong, it's still, it's getting worse. Oh, I should mention too, before we close up, we've talked a lot about Vietnam's successful track record. They ended up with a new case this week and they have no idea how this person got COVID-19 because their borders have been closed and he had not traveled in something like 10 months. So it's very, very strange. Um, they're, oh, so they're awful. back on with, with, with one case. Um, so, I mean, we're, we're still, I, I just feel, I've said this before, I think we're still closer to the beginning than the end of what COVID-19 is going to do. It's going to be with us a while. And I think they, the, the changes, there's some big changes still coming to the future of work and, and many other things. So I think we'll have lots of, lots of material, you in future shows. Great. Well, let's leave it on that happy note then, shall we? <laughs> yes. So stay, stay safe, everybody. That's that's the main thing. Um, if you like the show, please tell a friend. Um, it is good to get the word out there. We love, uh, we definitely love new listeners. Uh, you can also follow us on social media. You'll get um, an update when we drop a new show. And also, if there's any updates to some of the stories that we talk about, we often post them there. And you can also listen to us on YouTube um, and subscribe that way and Patreon and the website, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this is Cam with Ewan signing off from the PR and Law podcast. We'll see you next week.
has been the PRN Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and Ewan Christie. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support.